Welcome back to part two of our episode on MPOX. I'm Michael, your host, and I'm joined by Camille, a virologist at Johns Hopkins University, and Dr. Chris Byrer, the current director of Duke University's Global Health Institute and an expert on MPOX. This episode is the final part of our virology series, which we're producing in a partnership with the American Society for Virology. Last time we went over what MPOX is, where it came from, and what led to recent outbreaks of MPOX. Check out that episode if you haven't already. And now, we'll talk about how MPOX is diagnosed and treated, as well as what you should do if you think you're infected. Like last time, we do briefly discuss types of intimate contact, so this episode might not be the best for younger listeners. Alright, let's get to it. Chris, in our last episode, you mentioned that MPOX has affected gay men more so than other groups. So for our first question, how does MPOX spread? And why is it spreading more in the gay community specifically? Some of that, of course, is a function of the way the networks work. You know, there's subsets of this community who have multiple partners, who have concurrent partners, who engage in group scenes uh, that, you know, are, are very favorable for spread. There was a big debate early on about whether we should be saying that MPOX is a sexually transmitted infection or is it not? And I think the consensus is that the answer is yes to both. <laughs> it is clearly a sexually transmitted infection. It can be transmitted through oral, anal, and vaginal sex. No question about that. But it also can be spread through other forms of intimate contact. So kissing, uh, bare skin on skin, it can spread almost certainly in the same way um, that herpes does. So, you know, there's a form of herpes that we used to see quite a few outbreaks and still do in wrestlers, which is called herpes gladiatorum. And it's because they have very intimate contact and saliva and skin. And, and so, you know, that, that can happen. In the case of this current outbreak of MPOX, Many people have either a single or a small number of lesions. And so uh, that often doesn't look very impressive. And people might think, you know, they have a, a pimple or a, an ingrown hair or a staph infection or a carbuncle or something else. And it's challenging for providers if somebody shows up with a, with a lesion that doesn't really look like a typical case of MPOX. And that's why, you know, taking a sexual history and understanding uh, patients' behaviors is, is so important. Um, it's very easy to underdiagnose or misdiagnose MPOX. It's also easy to overdiagnose it. So, you know, the fact of the matter is, and this is where you, as a public health person, you always have to balance, you know, stigmatizing a population as opposed to, for example, seeing every kid with a rash and thinking it's monkeypox, because actually in our outbreak, there were almost no cases in children. Uh, and uh, if there were, they were household cases of somebody with MPOX. So a history would just help solve that very quickly. It is also uh, certainly um, can be spread through other kinds of intimate contact, like a baby with, with MPOX uh, changing that diaper, or, you know, sharing, sharing things like uh, toothbrushes, sex toys, those kinds of things. Last time, we briefly touched on the symptoms of MPOX, skin lesions, and other things of that nature. But what are other symptoms of MPOX that we should be aware of? It turns out that it can cause really quite serious mucosal lesions, so in the mouth and throat, which are extremely painful. 
genital lesions, both vaginal and penile, uh, which can also be very painful and which in some cases, for example, with men with penile lesions have required circumcision because there's been so much swelling that you actually are, you know, concerned about vascular uh, integrity. But probably the one that leads most often to hospitalization is that you can get um, rectal monkeypox from receptive anal sex. And that leads, it's extremely painful. Uh, you get, get lesions in the colon and the rectum, and it makes, for example, defecating just extremely painful. And most of the people who've been hospitalized in the US and in Europe and South America with monkeypox are hospitalized for pain management. But the people who really get sick from it and can die from it uh, generally are people who have some form of immunocompromise. So for example, if you were on cancer chemotherapy, you do not want mpox. And where this really intersects with the reality for gay men is that in so many communities and populations, we have very high rates of HIV infection in gay men. In Baltimore, among African-American uh, gay men, men who have sex with men, the prevalence is over 50%, and it has been for several years. And not all those people are on treatment. There are a significant proportion of them who are not on treatment. So what we've seen with MPOX, and this has been going on all last year, and it's continued, we just had a case recently here in North Carolina, is that gay men living with HIV who either are not diagnosed or for whatever reason are not on treatment are very susceptible to MPOX, and they get it, it looks more like an opportunistic infection. And they can get very severe disease, fully body disseminated disease, confluent lesions, case that we had here uh, was a, a relatively young man from a rural area, a gay man from a rural area in the state who had undiagnosed HIV infection and presented with this very serious illness. It wasn't entirely clear what it was. And then after the diagnostics were run, it turned out that he had both very high viral load, HIV viremia from untreated HIV and MPOX. And he responded happily very, very well to therapy, but he is going to end up having skin grafts because of the, really the confluent lesions that just destroyed significant amounts of his skin. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very serious disease if you have immunocompromise. I guess another thing when you mentioned the disease course uh, makes me wonder whether like secondary infections, like a bacterial infection is ever common if you have open skin lesions. Yes, they can happen. They certainly can. And that's particularly a problem, again, with people with immunocompromise. If you're immunocompromised, what can happen is that the lesions actually flow together and you get confluent lesions. And so you get a larger area of, of blistering uh, and exposure, and that can certainly get bacterial infection. Are there long-term consequences associated with MPOX? I'm thinking about it in terms of like long COVID. No, we haven't seen so much of that, although it's a long disease course. The typical disease course is about six weeks. Uh, there's a prodrome, then there's uh, usually the eruption of the lesions, and then the lesions uh, get pustuly, and then they scab, and then they flake off, uh, and then they dry. And uh, that whole process can take several weeks. And this has been a real challenge because people are infectious for up to six weeks. 
and have been strongly encouraged to stay at home, well, that's not so easy for everybody. Some people have those kind of jobs. Lots and lots of people don't, particularly young people who are, you know, the most likely to get this infection. So, so that that is a real concern. But um, but after recovery, generally, no, we haven't seen longer sequelae. The main sequelae that you see is scarring, because the lesions can leave scars, and you know you don't you don't see it so much anymore. But for example, when I was first doing epidemiology out in the field 30 years ago, you routinely, in many, many countries, India was a great example, you always saw people with smallpox scars because they had survived smallpox and they had these lesions all over their faces. Many of them were blind or deaf if they'd had involvement there. Those people have aged out and passed on, many of them from this life, and they have not been replaced. So you don't see that anymore, but it used to be very common. And that's, of course, potentially stigmatizing, you know, like, gee, what's that funny thing on your face? Oh, it's it's from having had mpox, you know, <laughs> nobody really wants to disclose that. So self-isolation is a major form of treatment for mpox, kind of like what we did for a COVID-19 infection. But are there other therapies for mpox? Once you have it, generally speaking, the, the care is supportive therapy. There is a treatment, T-pox, uh, an antiviral that generally is used only in more severe cases. As I said, most people are who do end up getting needing treatment or getting hospitalized, it's really mostly for pain management. That's particularly the case with anogenital, anorectal involvement uh, or head and neck face uh, involvement. But for the most part, the majority of people just ride it out at home. Uh, you are supposed to be in isolation. And it it's a bit like chickenpox. You know, it goes through its series uh, until until it's done and, uh, and the lesions have uh, flaked off and healed. One thing we haven't talked about yet is what specifically you should do if you think you've been infected with mpox. So what are the steps to an mpox diagnosis? The most important thing is you need to be seen by a provider and be transparent about what, what you think it is and how you might have been exposed and, and to be forthcoming. The index of suspicion for you know somebody who is not sexually active and doesn't have a giant Gambian pouched rat at home uh, is, go is going to be quite low. If you say, you know, I'm a gay man. I was in London last week. I was in two different bathhouses. That is an immediate indication that you should be screened. There is a two-stage testing. There's a, an initial test. Many providers, if that initial test is positive, will, uh, it's a nonspecific pox virus assay, uh, will immediately uh, start the treatment, T-pox. But if the the confirmatory test um, goes generally to the CDC, and that takes a little longer to get back. So uh, we're still concerned about the testing system. The, the White House actually set up an MPOX task force, uh, which is headed up by the, the tactical person, uh, is uh, a CDC leading scientist who actually had been in New York City as head of the HIV program there. His name is uh, Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis. Very, very good. And he is heading that up now uh, at the White House. And uh, they're really 
doing everything they can to ramp up the speed of testing, make sure that we have a vaccine here on U.S. soil in health departments uh, ready to be used, state health departments, and getting it out there to the community, uh, which really, really matters. Um, So, for example, you're probably going to, in many states, uh, certainly if they have their act together, you're going to be able to get MPOX vaccine at your local pride party. Speaking of the vaccine... We do have one for Impox in the form of the two-dose Genios vaccine, but that vaccine was specifically made to treat smallpox, right? So how do we get from there to using this vaccine now to treat Impox? In the case of uh, smallpox vaccine, so remember that the world manufactured a huge amount of it uh, when we were eradicating smallpox. And then there was much less need for vaccine. There is a stockpile. But that vaccine, by today's standards, probably wouldn't even get through the FDA, (laughs) remarkably, because it's so reactogenic. And uh, if you see older people who lived through, uh, I guess, most most of the vaccination stopped in the late 70s worldwide. But before that, people have scars on their arms, and they are impressive scars. It's it's hard to believe that people would tolerate that today, particularly with all the vaccine hesitancy we have. And you can't use that vaccine in people with immunocompromise. So the Genios vaccine, the two-dose, much safer vaccine, which is the one that is now being widely used, was developed specifically to address the threat of bioterrorism with smallpox virus. So that's why it was developed wasn't developed for a disease that was out there. It was developed as a part of preparedness for biological warfare or for a leak. So there has already been once, uh, there was one lab leak of smallpox in the UK. There was a confirmed case. The person who was involved in the leak, the actual lab tech person committed suicide. You know, it's, it's it's a very disturbing thing that you might have reintroduced this virus to planet Earth. So... The Russians still have still have uh, smallpox stores. We have smallpox stores, and the UK has. That's it. But you know, bad things can happen. Somebody could steal them. Somebody could could uh, bomb the facility in Russia, which of course is actively at war right now. Bad things happen in the world. So the Genios vaccine was developed. It's a two dose vaccine as a protection against both willful spread of smallpox or Uh, unwitting accidental spread. And basically, one company in Denmark got the contract, uh, was paid for by the US, was developed by the NIH, and it was evaluated doing animal challenge studies, as I said, because you can't really, you can't test smallpox in humans. It's, uh, you know, the disease is eradicated. But it turned out to be highly effective against MPOX. And we didn't have the luxury of doing trials. We just immunized and tried to follow as many people as possible. And as usual, you know, it's always tricky to do this in the United States because we don't have a national health system and we don't have a public surveillance for so many things. But fortunately, there was a big outbreak in the UK, which has a national health, and their data have been enormously helpful in documenting that, in fact, uh, it really does play an important role, and, it, and it, it has good efficacy, and it's very well tolerated, and it's well tolerated in people living with HIV, which, of course, is so important for the gay community, because we have the highest burdens of HIV, along with trans women and, and people who inject drugs of any community. 
I do remember my parents showing me their smallpox vaccine scars, and they did look pretty intense. From what I understand, you do get lifelong immunity from the smallpox vaccine. Do we know how long immunity to mpox lasts after receiving the Genios vaccine? I think as far as we know, it, it has lasting protection. You know, we haven't really ever used it until this outbreak. So, uh, you know, we're, we're learning that. But certainly the, the old vaccinia-based vaccine, which was a live attenuated uh, virus, um, yes, it gave lifelong immunity. In doing my research for this episode, I read about a technique called ring vaccination, which is used to stimulate the spread of an outbreak. How does this technique work, and has it been used to limit impox outbreaks? So ring vaccination actually was developed, uh, and a former dean at the School of Public Health at Hopkins, D.A. Henderson, was one of the people who led this. The early thinking about smallpox uh, was that it was intensely infectious and it spread quickly. And so if you had an outbreak, say, in a state like Maryland, uh, you would have to immunize everyone in Maryland to, to prevent an outbreak. And so it was, it was a mass vaccination strategy. Over time, particularly in rural areas and in the last countries like Ethiopia and Somalia and Sudan, uh, which were kind of the last holdout uh, of, of smallpox. It turned out that actually people with smallpox were quite sick and they don't move that much and distances are far. And it turned out that if you had an outbreak in a village, what you really needed to do was immunize around that case and the households in the, you know, in the village and not have to do an enormous amount of other vaccinations. So you, you, the idea was that you put a ring fence of vaccination around the case, and that's where it comes from, the ring vaccination. In a context like MPOX, if you have, for example, an outbreak in a gay community festival, it isn't so much that you're doing a ring fence as it is that you're really trying to work through the network. So the, the network of men who engage in those kind of social activities and sexual activities, that's the population you have to reach. And because gay men are so mobile, and you have to remember that um, these events that happened in 2022, they were the first ones in three years. All of this shut down. 2020 and 2021, there were none of these big pride events. It was COVID years. So there was an enormous groundswell, like when people realized, okay, it's safe to party, you know, they everybody went flew to the Canary Islands. So so it's more of a network-based approach. But certainly, you know, what what's happening, for example, right now in Chicago, uh, it's very important for Chicago to immunize uh, its gay men. And, uh, you know, if you were in the neighboring states, you might want to be really ramping that up quickly now as well. That's all the questions we have for today. Chris, anything else that you think people should be aware of when it comes to inbox? You know, I would say that one of the underlying really, really tragic aspects of this outbreak is that it could have been prevented in Nigeria. And it's really an example of homophobia that, that it, we couldn't. And, uh, you know, we're seeing in many countries of the world, Uganda just passed a terrible anti-gay discriminatory law that we're going in the opposite direction, right? What we need is for people to be treated with dignity and be able to access healthcare and to be honest about their uh, social and sexual lives. Uh, and that's just not possible in so much of the world. And that means that we continue to be vulnerable to these kind of outbreaks. So there's a human rights aspect to MPOX as well. All right. Thank you, Chris and Camille. 
That's all for our episode on Impox. Again, this is our third episode in our virology series, in which we're partnering with the American Society for Virology. If you enjoyed this episode, then definitely go check out the other two episodes in the series, the first being on the influenza or flu virus, and the second covering some of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on housing and education in Baltimore and the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends and family, follow us on social media, and check out our other content on our website. We're also on most of the major streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Links to all those will be provided in the show notes. If you have a science question you want answered, please contact us on social media or email us at simore.podcast at gmail.com. We're happy to answer your science questions. Happy Pride! Happy Pride!